Hello, and welcome to Off the Cuff. I am your host, Chris Martinson, and on this program, every week, we are going to bring you a fascinating guest, where we are going to discuss the economy, energy, or the environment, informally and without a script. Welcome, everyone. Today, I am with Charles Hughes-Smith, frequent contributor, and uh, I'm very pleased to have you here today. Charles, it's uh, good talking to you again. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. All right, so let's jump right in. You know, I, I just put a piece out um, where I articulated at least four main reasons why I think there are bubbles out there in the global bond and, and equity markets. But today, I think, sort of provides, casts a little illumination on this process. Uh, you and I were just talking before I hit the record button that the Fed, Bernanke, is talking uh, in front of Congress. And so he, he says some words, and instantly... Gold shot up like 30 bucks and it was over 415 and then the Dow was up 150 points and then a little later in the testimony, slightly different words came out and the whole thing reversed and gold ended up down on the day and, and the Dow and the S&P had probably one of their largest down days of the month, but maybe the year. I don't know. I'll have to check because they haven't had many down days. And, and so this was, to me, indicative of where we are. I can't – I've been watching markets for a long time, maybe not as long as – is you or, or other people, but pretty long time. And I can't remember ever seeing them gyrate based on the testimony of one man because of one word, one dangling participle, one tiny inflection change. It's, it's indicative to me of where we are in this story, which is speculation is run rampant when markets, trillion dollar markets, the dollar, the S&P, the DAX, they all gyrated relative to one man's words. How do you take this as a long-time observer? Yeah, well, Chris, it, it reminds me of previous bubbles just before they burst. Um, and, and like, I, the only analogy I can think of is um, back in the tech bubble, the, the last, the waning um, era of the, of the tech bubble in, like, late 1999 and early 2000, you had things like the book-to-bill ratio would come out. Oh, and, right. Um, and then suddenly... You know, the semiconductor stocks would, would gyrate by 10 or 20% in a day, depending on that. But it was extreme evidence of a frothy, fragile market. And, of course, anybody betting in those kind of markets, like the NASDAQ, went from like 4,000 to 5,000 in a matter of months. You couldn't really bet against it, but you could predict that it was a bubble and that it was going to deflate dramatically at some point. And that's, I think where we are today with these kinds of fragile markets hanging on arbitrary uh, metrics. Well, I think that's a great uh, piece of history you've pulled up. I forgot about the book-to-bill ratio. I used to watch it because, of course, the market did gyrate wildly. But, it, you know, I could at least make the case that there that you could tie that book-to-bill. That was something fundamental, right? We're looking at the underlying business prospects for the tech industry. And so, so that makes some amount of sense. And I guess today it makes sense because Bernanke is – is the fundamental source of all new money. So so I guess that makes sense. But the thing that, that you've reminded me of is that one of the other things I've noticed about bubbles, asset bubbles, is that they usually have a final blow-off stage, something where it's just that last zoom to, what, the moon, I guess, before things reverse. I, I've seen that a lot. We saw that in gold in 1980. Uh, we saw it in the tech stocks. We see it in individual stocks. Um, it's It's out there. So... So do you think it's it's I mean are we in the final blow off stage here in the US markets is there or could there be one last big giant surge just to well what's the point of that surge I guess to drag almost everybody in so that the largest amount of fleece can be shorn Yeah that's the general theory but I 
you know, a, a lot of technical analysts are, 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 are kind of predicting that we get a decline here in the next few weeks, and then we have one more uh, run in that final speculative phase you described, but uh, nobody knows. I mean, this could be it. It certainly feels like it, that when Bernanke says X, then the market jumps 150 points. That that certainly feels like the final stages of a parabolic blow-off, and so... Maybe this is it. Maybe, but this time, you know, the thing that is different is that we have all the world central banks playing. And so I think the Nikkei crossed 16,000 today, if I'm not mistaken. And I want to just point out that 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 was in the 8,000 zone back in November of 2012 or maybe October. So so that's a 100% gain in just six months, seven months. And that's extraordinary. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's not a small equity market, right? I mean, when have you have you ever seen a hundred percent gain in a few months in any equity market of that size? No, it's like that would be typical of Zimbabwe or um, some yeah. some 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 nation that's undergoing a complete collapse in its currency. And I, the way I sort of phrase the thing about Japan and also the DAX and, and the European stocks, yeah. why would German stocks be hitting highs when the, um, their primary markets are China and Europe and they're both imploding or in decline and Germany itself is, is burdened with a lot of debt and other problems? There's absolutely no fundamental justification for new highs in Germany any more than in Japan. But... Um, we have to ask, is the Japanese economy 100% better? Yeah. Are Japanese corporations generating 100% more profit? In other words, any kind of basis for that kind of valuation, it's not improving at all or it's extremely marginal. And Whoa. so, yeah, it's just it's, it's totally unjustified. Maybe people's uh, Japanese people's faith in their currency has been reduced by 50%. Um, it, it, I don't know that. So... I'm looking at Japan, and, and their current account deficit is horrible. They, they are having the worst run of trade deficits now that they've had since the 70s. And by the way, they were a basket case back then, just just horrible. And and so they're just hemorrhaging like crazy. And, and yes, the yen may weaken a lot, but what we just saw in the last piece of data was that their exports had ticked up nominally, and their imports had about doubled um, over that. So yeah, the weak yen is is helping imports. Uh, sorry, exports a tiny bit, and and it's helping imports a lot. Helping in the sense it's making them cost a lot more. So it's kind of as I predicted a while back, which is weakening your currency only helps if and only if your exports end up exceeding your 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 spike in import costs, and that's not happening for Japan. So they're hemorrhaging. They're actually hemorrhaging at this point in time as a nation, um, which we're seeing. I think in their having some palpitations, some gyrations in their bond market, too. Have you followed that at all? Yeah, and I think it um, kind of tying it back into um, Bernanke's testimony, I think it maybe we can look at the greater narrative here of the unexpected consequences of central authorities pulling a few levers and in attempting to control extremely complex and interrelated economies. Yeah. You know? And so Bernanke's basically pulling... The, he pulled the interest rate lever, put that to zero, and now he's he's pulling the QE lever and putting in about a trillion dollars a year. But the, that launches a lot of unexpected consequences, and um, I think Japan is, is perhaps taking that case to an extreme. Well, how do we put gold into this context? Because i, I got to be honest with you, I'm a little surprised that gold seems to be sending an absolutely anti-signal 
to what I would think the Federal Reserve and other central banks would want to be indicating at this point in time, which is that inflation is right around the corner and coming, which uh, to me, gold is not a great inflation hedge or barometer, but at least conventionally it's, it's, it's held that way by the media and, and other um, uh, describers of this, uh, what gold is supposed to be doing. So I look at gold and I look at that big giant hit and I'm thinking 2008 again, something, something doesn't feel right in that. The story's got an off note in the symphony. Yeah, I, and, and Chris, I think the way I would kind of characterize this is the narratives that the mainstream media are presenting no longer make sense. Like, in other words, like, say, gold and inflation. Gold is supposed to be an inflationary hedge, as you say. That's the standard narrative. Well, we've been in a low inflation environment for like a decade, and gold's gone from like 300 bucks to 1900 or, or 1500 that doesn't jive with the explanation. Then the other thing is, oh, gold goes up when the dollar weakens. Well, the dollar's kind of gyrated within a, a, a range for like a decade, and it's pretty much where it was 10 years ago, and yet gold is, you know, quintupled. So that story doesn't make any sense either. <laughs> and so I think the only narrative that does make sense is the one you just mentioned, which is gold is the canary in the, in the gold mine, if you will, in two different ways. And this is what confuses us is, you know, as observers is it, gold is the one, the most liquid thing someone can have. You're always going to have a buyer. There's always going to be a bid for gold. You cannot always um, have that um, bid in stocks or bonds or real estate because if there's a disruption or a dislocation in the market, the bid disappears. You've got no buyers. But there's always buyers for gold. So if you start, if somebody feels hesitant, or um, they've got a margin call, or they need cash to pay debt, then they're going to sell their gold first. And that's I, that's my explanation for why gold got hammered in 2008. It's the first thing you can you can dump and know you're going to get full value. So what are you seeing in in the price of gold now? I, I note that every time it seems to get a little bit of a bid, it just gets sold pretty hard. Uh, today was no exception. But I'm looking at, at markets as having weird cross-correlations. And, and so here's an example. The other night, silver like lost a couple bucks. It was just hysterical. I think it was, um, when was that, Sunday night coming into yeah, Monday 10%. morning? Yeah, 10%. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. And, and the linkage that was made in the media was that this had to do with uh, some gyration in the Japanese yen, and, and somehow these are linked up. And I, I couldn't, for the life of me, put together a trading strategy that was like long yen, long silver. Like, what is that? Um, you know, but, but it happened. And, and so I'm watching the, you know, these, these correlations between markets. They've been very high for a long time. But, but now it seems like if, if you get a, a butterfly flap in Japan, you, you, you get that, you get that hit in the silver market, or maybe Greece's stock market goes up, or maybe it, it's hard to say. And, and so, my concern, uh, something I didn't really articulate in this last piece, my concern is that this really shows me it's not just speculation that's run amok at this point in time. It's that we have a, a computerized, non-human sort of it, – it's an algorithmic trading environment to a large extent. There's humans involved too, but there's, there's a lot of algorithms out there doing what they do, and boy, are they fast, and they're ruthless, and they don't care about fundamentals. They're really just momentum price chasers, I think, for the most part. Uh, today's uh, testimony gyrations being a case in point. And, and so as I look at this, I'm thinking that, you know, this next downturn, when it happens, if it's if it's the big one, you know, if we get some sort of 87, um, you know, situation to go over again, I think it's going to be really fast. It's going to be nasty, brutish, and short. What do you think? Yeah, what you're describing is um, 
the fragility of markets that rely rely on computer trading. And, you know, we've seen a number of flash crashes, and a lot of other commentators have, have um, found it meaningful that there's many flash crashes where particular uh, stocks and individual companies will crash to a, a, a bit of, like, one cent for, like, a few milliseconds or whatever. And so this, um, this, all, this is, seems to be, to me, adding another layer of fragility. Not only is, are the markets globally hanging on, on, on every word of central bankers, terrified of, of any, um, any limiting of, of the flow of free money, but it's also the, the computer trading you mentioned is, is adding another layer of fragility because it's, all those guys are programmed to uh, follow the trend. And so if the trend reverses, then you have to ask, well, can the central bankers, um, can their trading machines stop a downturn? Charles, I'm really glad you brought up those mini flash crashes because one of the one of the things I I, I do get from time to time are, are people who who when I talk about bubbles or or misallocation or or feeling generally like prices aren't where they ought to be, I get this. They say the markets are always right, which is a way of saying that if you you can rail and and complain all you want, but you know the price is the price, and the implication never really spoken cleanly is that. If if the market sets a price of X, then that's the price, and you can like it or not like it; it doesn't matter. But but that there's some wisdom contained in that price. And so now, when I, I you know you remind me of these mini flash crashes where I've seen lots of examples. Go to Nanix.com; they've got pages of them, where individual shares for upwards sometimes of even seconds will go from eighty dollars a share to a penny a share. And and I would just look at that and say, so for those three seconds, was the market right? You know. <laughs> Is GE's worth a penny? Is that true? You know, and uh, and so I, I I truly believe that you know we have this. What we're talking about here is the chance and the possibility for market distortions to give us bad information on the one hand, and and that bad information to lead us astray, and then on the other hand to potentially set us up for a pretty big fall if it turns out the pricing information we've got is not even remotely coupled to reality. You know, junk bonds, corporate junk bonds, under five percent. Have you looked at that? Yeah, yeah. I, I read your piece with great interest because, it to me, you uh, you tied in um, the same um, topic you you just brought up, which is the mispricing of value and also the mispricing of risk. Mm. And so people are being um, sort of persuaded that by by Bernanke and and the, the so-called pricing of the market that risk has been um, reduced to the point where you can buy junk bonds, you can buy the, the Greek stock market, you, you know, you can buy anything on the planet, you know, bat guano, you, you name it, <laughs> and it's going to go up because um, risk has been wiped out because the central banks have our backs. And so the, that, that's the, the big question is the, re- the relation of trust and the, the mispricing of risk. So when risk is actually priced in, then trust will be lost. That's kind of my my thinking of the next the next crash will be deeper and perhaps longer than most people anticipate, because the market will lose faith in that um, the central bank's ability to crush pricing of risk. You know, I, I, this is an intriguing topic, and and um, there's a there's something I've been curious about that I haven't I haven't really assembled all the data yet. But here's a couple of data points that tie into this. One is. Uh, seeing that hedge funds have largely underperformed 
the general equity markets. And and so that's fine. Maybe they're hedging in other markets that have gone down. But when we look at bond markets have gone up uh, pretty strongly and and uh, equity markets are up, those are the two main sources. Commodities are the only place I think you could have sort of gone flat or even lost some, some money in the last quarter or two. But everything else is up. And and so I see that hedge funds have underperformed that general up market. And I'm wondering what's happening there. And then I wander over and I look at pensions and endowments have also badly underperformed the overall market. In some cases, they're dead flat for the past 6 to 12 months. And I'm wondering, how is that possible? Because, you know, we have these massive gains accruing across all the financial asset markets, but some of the largest and most sophisticated players aren't receiving those gains. Still, we see um, net equity outflows over the past 12 months or even 24 months now for the retail investors. So, so the people you would generally expect to be participating and enjoying this ride aren't. So who are the gains going to? What, what, do, you have, do you have any idea how to connect those dots? Yeah, no, it's, um, that is extremely intriguing. And um, I, I think it's one of the major unreported stories. Only, only the uh, guys like Zero Hedge have reported how badly hedge funds have performed in, in this um, everything's rising uh, market, you know. And, um, yeah, the, the, the pension funds and the mutual funds underperformance that, that you just described should be worrying. It may be another layer of risk being added on that the institutional players have stayed out of this rally, that they, they haven't trusted it or that they've um, – looked at the rising risk and decided to keep their marbles um, off the playing field. Well, that's how I connect those dots. I I think that both the retail and the institutional investors, um, which would be pensions and endowments, have largely stayed to the sidelines because they still don't trust this. And in private conversations with people who do a lot of trading, who are fairly wealthy, who are in positions to, to manage these sorts of assets, they don't trust it. That, that's absolutely true. And then on the other side, you have the hedge funds who presumably are so skittish that they're trading themselves out of like better gains, right? They're, they're jumping out of the way a lot. And so together, I think these come back to that word of trust. The hedge funds don't trust that they can just leave their money in the market. So they're, they're over trading, as it were, handling that bar of soap too many times. And it's getting a little smaller, which I'm familiar with. And uh, in my own portfolio. So, and then there's the level of trust in, in the retail side and also the institutional side seems low. So, so that feels like a perfect storm to me when you have this low pressure system, which is low trust. And then you have these high pressure system, which is all these high asset prices all sort of swirling together and they want, they, they might come together at some moment. And uh, it, it could be a, a, a fairly ugly moment, but that's, that's, you know, I get to say that because this is my third sets of bubbles that I've gotten to to view and witness, and I, I know how this story ends. It yeah, feels and, the same. Yeah, and, and um, you know, you mentioned it in your last uh, piece, but um, the, the the propaganda level is is also extraordinary. Yeah. In other words, there's very little skepticism about these uh, record markets in Japan and and um, and in Germany, and 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 it's um and you know every time gold goes up, then there's suddenly seven new stories about how gold is dead, and some brilliant hedge funder you know is selling even more, even though uh, like for instance in the case of George Soros, it turns out he he bought like ten times a, a larger position that was ten times the position he sold because he bought options. On the uh, the, the uh, junior miners, and so, anyways, the, the propaganda level is is extraordinary. And don't you? Doesn't that remind you of previous bubbles as well? Oh, absolutely. It's 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 one of the things I track. It's it's a uh, 
it, it's a tricky, slippery eel to, to get your hands on, but it's absolutely essential, which is that one of the prime things you have to have for a bubble to really exist is you have to have self-delusion. You have to be able to come up with stories about why this all makes sense. And I called one of those out in my piece, which was Paul Krugman, who, who, who really ought to know better. I mean, you know, he's got a solid economic foundation saying that, you know, because corporate profits are so high, eh, you know, they're, this justifies high uh, equity prices. But he didn't, he didn't mention that, that these are, that corporate profits are in a place where they've never been before in history. So you can either make one of those awkward claims that, corporate profits have found a new permanently high plateau of prosperity or or you can say well there's a good chance this might revert to the mean and if it does what does that imply here's the thing when everything's priced to perfection both on the bond and the equity side there's really no room for error and and that's the thing that's just weird to me is particularly watching the Greece stock market rise against all the fundamental data gdp unemployment trade data you name it everything just says collapse i mean that economy is down more than 22 percent uh, since 2008. I mean, that is just horrific modern day sort of uh, economic uh, behavior. Spain is well on its way to, to repeating that that particular piece of behavior. And and all of Europe's in recession. And you mentioned, you know, that the German stock market's hitting highs. It's not hitting just new highs, but all-time highs. It's not just, you know, getting up to, to new 52-week highs. It's, it's in record territory. And so you think you would want to see some sort of record fundamentals under that. Um not so much. So, so that's the disconnect, and a lot of people feel it. And, and that's what my invitation to anybody listening is: just trust yourself. I mean, if it doesn't feel right, if the story doesn't make sense, if the if there's something in the narrative that's like missing, um, yeah, there's some self delusion going on there. And I'm just, I guess, uh, I'm I'm really I got to find somebody in the behavioral sciences who can explain what's going on with respect to the media who are so eager to to tell this this current story of recovery and like this is all normal somehow yeah that's an interesting topic in and of itself and uh... because of course the mainstream media lives off advertising by corporate america and so any anything that that threatens the status quo threatens their own livelihood and i think that's certainly part of it is if you want to if you want to get access to paul krugman you have to bow down and kiss his ring and so um, <laughs> there's part of that too but you know, um, kind of speaking to the, the whole context of your, your latest piece, it seems to me that there's two things that are occurring. One is that there's a tidal change that is approaching, I think, that the speculative bubble we're talking about is close to bursting. And then we can ask, well, what's the next step beyond that? And I think the one critical piece of information is the Fed is it has no more rabbits in its hat. In other words, if the market collapses or, or takes a, even a 10 or 20 percent hit, that discredits the, the, the Fed and its political backers. But it also calls the, into question, what's the Fed's response going to be? If, if, it, if a trillion dollars a year in QE didn't work, are they going to propose two trillion a year in QE? Or will their political capital have been damage to the point where um, they're really crippled. They're, they won't be able to respond because they've been discredited. And I think that's a possibility. And everybody that supported them, Krugman, President Obama, and everybody else who's been along for the ride, pointing to the stock market as the sole metric of of prosperity for America, they'll all be discredited. <laughs> well, if the, if the decision is to either throw in the towel or double down, you, you know what they're going to do, don't you? 
And so then the question is, they double down, and what if the stock market doesn't recover? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's where that, this whole topic we've been discussing about loss of trust and loss of faith comes in, that people will go, you know, especially if you're managing somebody else's $10 billion, you know, you, you really um, have to think twice if, if, the, if the policy has failed. And, and you know that doubling down isn't going to make anything different. It's not really reforming what needs to be reformed. Then you're not going to buy into it. And so we, we may have a, an extreme example of diminishing returns. They, uh, they double down and nothing good happens in the stock market. And then they triple down and the market takes another fall because people understand that now the whole thing is broken. You know, the thing that drives me a little nuts, and, and that's, I think that's absolutely right, and it's, it's certainly something I'm tracking, the thing that drives me nuts is, is the, the big picture here, which is that really I, I, I need Bernanke because they've got hundreds of PhD economists and they could certainly put the paper together and they could certainly build the models and they could explain what they're after. But I think they have to explain one of two conditions, either how it is that we're going to perpetually grow credit faster than income, or two, they have to explain how it is our system can operate and operate stably, well, and equitably when credit is matching underlying economic prosperity and growth, which means that from time to time, it'll have to shrink because from time to time, we have recessions. So that's the thing that I, I don't hear them talking about. It's just, it's just sort of this blind spot they sort of wave their hands at. We want the credit markets to grow again. And, and I know what they're saying. They're saying we want credit to grow at 6 7 even 8% per year. And we'll have nominal GDP growth, if we're lucky, of half that to maybe 6%, you know, 3 to 6%. But realistically, they haven't said yet how it is. That, what's the plan, you know? And, and ultimately, it's kind of like Bernanke has internalized the default Dick Cheney position, which is deficits don't matter. And I think, I think that's the position that a lot of people in D.C. are holding, is that they don't matter. And... That's the part of the story that I can't get my brain around because it just seems like the simplest math there is in this story. Yeah, my, my take on that is that um, the myth that everyone's clinging to, and I, I think it really is perhaps more fantasy than myth, but it, it's, it's, um, it may be a myth simply because it goes back to how did we fix the Great Depression? And what we did was we spent a whole lot of money and we built a bunch of stuff, half of which ended up on the bottom of the ocean or rotting in some field somewhere. But it didn't matter because that uh, spending money that was uh, created out of nothing or borrowed got us out of the Great Depression. But the conditions of World War II were entirely different than they are now. And so uh, I think that's really what they're referring to is the myth that if you just spend enough money doing anything, digging a hole and then, and then re and filling it, um, that you're going to create a self-sustaining recovery. And I think that's, that's where the, the waving of the dead chickens you're talking about is occurring, is the, the, um, the, what I call a cargo cult. You know, they're waving the dead chickens and, and dancing around the fire, Krugman and, and Bernanke and all these guys, basically hoping, without any evidence, that you create a self-sustaining recovery by pumping in uh, money into a an economy of diminishing returns. And I think that's what they can't dare admit. It's, it's all diminishing returns. You borrow 10 bucks and you put it in, you get a dollar out. You borrow 20, then you get 50 cents. And at some point, that system no longer works. And that's indeed the trend we've been on. And that even includes the idea that um, the amount of economy that we've been telling ourselves we've been getting, I believe, has is, is been fictionalized to a large extent because we have both 
imputational and hedonic adjustments to the GDP, which is makes it really one of the fuzzier numbers. And, and you know, we all know that GDP doesn't really – you get what you measure, and GDP is not a great measure. Uh, and so we're getting some not great results. So, for instance, Sandy. You know, Sandy showed up nicely, I believe, in Home Depot's uh, most recent earnings, and that looks great. Uh, look, you know, awesome earnings for Home Depot, but realistically what happened there was a bunch of homes got destroyed – and we're rebuilding them. So at best, that ought to be a net zero, but we don't do that. GDP is just, you know, net positive on that. That's that's awesome. And and so, you know, what you're talking about is we're pumping more and more debt, and we can measure that very clearly and cleanly. We're not including the cost of unfunded liabilities in that either. Those are just sort of stored up as potential energy in the system. And then we're measuring it against this, this articulation of our prosperity, which is um, sometimes just actually measuring destruction, it, you know, in, instead of instead of prosperity. So... I don't, you know, I'm just, I, I really, I, I get very, I don't know if despair is the right word, but I am getting I'm increasingly concerned at the inability of our leadership to even begin to frame this predicament and sets of problems crisply in any sort of way that makes sense to me. And when I talk with younger people, they get it right away. You know, my daughter who's 19, she, she just, she's like, no, this, no, this is just all, this is complete garbage at this point. I run into that a lot these days with people who no longer buy the official narrative, but boy, they keep more and more stridently with it, uh, it seems. Yeah, that, that's a, a, an interesting topic, that clinging to fantasy as opposed to wanting to deal with the reality and, I, I kind of think that fear is is a big part of our culture and that culture of clinging to fantasies, that people are afraid and they lack the self-confidence needed to go forward, and so they cling to a system that's broken in, in the magical thinking hope that it's all going to fix itself. And um, so that's really what peak prosperity is about and, and um, other voices in the blogosphere who are trying to say we can... It's, it doesn't have to be awful if the current status quo devolves, which we know it will, at least the financialization part of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think the fear is perhaps a, a natural emotion, but it's, it's not going to lead to a good result unless we recover our self-confidence that, um, that we can make the reforms that need to be made. And none of those reforms have been made. Instead, we have simulacra reforms like Dodd-Frank and, and Obamacare, you know, 2,000-page pieces of legislation that basically allow the cartels to write the rules to these uh, gargantuan laws, and then nothing really changes as a result, you know. You're just adjusting the parameters of a broken system. So, yeah, we, we need to get past fear and, and, and start having some confidence about a future that's sustainable. Well, you know, it's... Uh... It, it's easier, I think, to have those conversations when times are, are reasonably uh, going well. And this would have been, these past few years, I think, would have been a great time uh, to have those conversations. And my concern is that all these trillions that the Fed has invested, which include trillions of trust units that may well be broken and, and squandered, that we didn't take that opportunity to really bear down and, and ask what's working, what's not, what should we keep, what should we throw out, what new things have to be considered, and, and just sort of pretended as if we could just get back to status quo, whatever that is. And, uh, you know, things will go back to normal if we just all wish hard enough. And so, you know, if that trust gets squandered and if these markets break and these bubbles burst, then we're going to be treated with the idea that a crisis is no time to really be thinking big. You know, that's when you really got to survive and, and make hard choices and prune the tree, you know, to within an inch of its life and do other painful sorts of things. So that's my concern is that we haven't really taken this opportunity to 
uh, I think, undergo the necessary introspection, which really for me is just simply, hey, we live beyond our means for a while. How are we gonna? How are we gonna live below our means? You know, that's that's the fundamental conversation that has to happen, and it's it's happening by default in the sense that banks held up their hands early and privately and said, we're not taking these losses. And those got foisted off to the taxpayers who basically woke up one day and said, hey, that hurt. What what just happened? So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm still bubble bubble territory, super stretched. Your, your perception of where we are today in the entire context of your lifetime as a trader and market observer, how, how stretched are we right here? Well, you know, Chris, you mentioned pruning a tree, and I'm going to use an analogy which is, you know, if you let a tree, uh, a fruit tree, um, keep growing and the leaves get, uh, the branches get longer and you don't uh, pair the fruit in any way, uh, the tree will trim, uh, will prune itself in the most destructive possible way. Its branches will break off. And, uh, you know, those of, uh, those of us who have managed fruit trees know that's what happens. And so I think that's where we're at is, You've inflated, they've inflated speculative bubbles in, in bond stocks and real estate. And um, those markets are going to prune themselves hmm. because no one, because the authorities and, um, and are not willing to prune them effectively themselves. So we're just going to run out of punch and then the party's going to come to a crashing halt? Yeah, I think there's some branches are going to start snapping <laughs> in the global credit market. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, well, certainly a great great analogy or metaphor there because uh, I have fruit trees and, and they're heavily laden with fruit and I'm going to have to um, strip the fruit this year and so that's going to be fun. And I uh, really do appreciate talking with you here today and um, I hope we can do it soon. Thank you very much, Chris.